Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. We enjoyed a wonderful time with family this past week and with three generations converging together, talking about all kinds of things. As you can imagine, one of the topics that came up was the state of affairs of our country as well as the world. We talked about fear, division, whether it be politics, law and order, whatever that division might be. We talked about ungodly behavior and actions and decisions of the Supreme Court and bullying and financial problems. Well, we didn't stay there very long because it's so negative, but we did talk about it. And we wondered why. Why has our country gotten ourselves into this predicament? And then we realize it's because we've turned our hearts away from God and the Bible. Even a Pew survey of 2012 showed that 20% of Americans do not identify with any particular religion. And it's even worse when you look at those under 30, one third of them do not identify with a particular religion. What is happening in our country? We need a spiritual revival. We need to turn back to God. That's why this week we're going to deviate again away from our ongoing study of Revelation to focus on how we can change things in our lives and in our country. I'm Debbie Blank. This is an important message today that we need to hear and heed. And I'm Jackie Sailors. And way back in 2007, most of us couldn't have imagined the way our country and our world look like today. But that's the year I remember being so shocked to hear a John MacArthur sermon he called A Nation Abandoned by God. The bottom line was that America was already being judged. We just hadn't figured it out yet. And the audience at that time, I remember, it was so totally stunned you could have heard a pin drop. Fast forward to today, and most Christians wouldn't be shocked to hear that sermon at all. We're painfully aware of the consequences of America's slide away from God. We thought it might be better to look for hope in God in the pattern of the oft-quoted Second Chronicles passage so that we can actually start living it out today. We want to discuss that passage, a well-known passage from Second Chronicles 7.14, because we as a nation and as a world have fallen down that slippery slope that is happening so quickly we can hardly even keep up with how much we are turning away from God. The only way to stop that ship and turn it around is to follow Second Chronicles 7.14. So let me quote it here, and then we're going to walk through it. We're going to talk about what it says what it means, and how we can apply it to our lives. Second Chronicles 7.14, and I'm reading from the King James Version because I like the way it, it's read easier and better and more succinct than other versions. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. Did you notice how it starts out? If. There's a conditional phrase there. That means we have a responsibility. If my people, which means the people of God, 
have a responsibility to take actions. That means we need to see what's going on so that we can then turn our hearts back to God. We who are called by his name, and his name means specifically identifying ourselves with him. We are God's people, and it all starts with us. You know, there are people who will say that we've taken that passage out of context, that it refers to Israel, it doesn't refer to America, but we don't say it's a magic formula. Anything that God's obliged to go by as far as America is concerned or as far as the people in America are concerned, but it does refer to his people, which we are. We're called by his name. It refers to his character. It's consistent with his patterns. So it seems to be a good place to start for a personal or group revival. And it certainly struck a chord with many people. Jackie, I'm glad you mentioned the history behind this, the context of this. If we look at Second Chronicles chapter 7, what we see is that God is speaking to Solomon as Solomon is dedicating the first temple to God. They are worshiping. They have sacrificed hundreds of thousands of animals to God at the dedication of this temple. So God's speaking to Solomon, and he's telling him, in effect, that your people, the Israelites, are going to turn away from me. They are my people, but they're going to seek other gods. And when they do, here's what I'm going to do. If they will repent, I will do this. If they won't repent, there will be consequences. So that's the context of Second Chronicles 7.14. But as you say, we can appropriate that to our lives. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're told in verse 6 that the things that happened in the Old Testament were written as examples to us that we should learn from them. Then again, in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, it goes on to say, these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction. So what we see from the Old Testament are examples, but they still show the character of God. If the people sinned, God was going to heal them if they repented. If they didn't repent, there would be consequences. That's the same thing for us. We see that in life today in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and in life today. So we are not just taking this phrase out of context. The principle is there. The character of God is all over this verse. And as we go through the principles of this passage, you can see why it struck a chord with so many people, and it's so often quoted. These are basic things that we can do, where we can be empowered. I mean, I've gotten to the point where I've been a news junkie for many years and been in journalism, and so it's one of those things that I'm always drawn to, And it's getting to the point where I need to turn it off. I need to turn away. I don't want to be uninformed. But what it makes me want to do is turn toward God. So when there's a passage like this that we can turn to and actually do something and actually live this out in our lives, that's really hopeful to me. That's why we as God's people need to take this literally. We need to look at ourselves and what we're doing because it will be up to us, just as it was up to the people of Nineveh to repent when the message was brought to them. It's up to us as people of God to repent. The first thing, however, before we get into repentance, the first thing that God calls the people to do is to humble themselves. What does the word humble mean? In the original language, in the Hebrew, It is kana, K-A-N-A, and it means to subdue, being lowly, being meek. Now, that's the opposite of pride, which is the tendency that we have in our world. So when we're humble, we're supposed to get rid of ourselves and focus on God. 
In the New Testament, the word humble actually means it's a dog licking his master's hand. And if you think about that, that shows complete and total reliance on the master. Worship, adoration, and reliance on the master. That's what humility really is. I remember um, a few years back, there was a famous uh, newscaster who talked about, you know, the Ten Commandments is not the Ten Suggestions. And I think when we put ourselves on the throne, it's like, okay, there's so many people that think that the Bible is a wonderful book, it's a nice guidebook for life, but you really don't have to do what it says, and you can kind of pick and choose what you like and what you don't like. And when that starts to happen, you have moved away and you have designed your own God. So what we need to do is realize who God really is and come under submission to him. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God's opposed to the proud, the self-righteous, the people who focus on themselves and what they have and who they are and what they do. Instead, God gives grace to the humble, those who recognize that everything we have comes from God. Everything that we are comes from God. That's why he goes on in 1 Peter 5, 6 to say, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. We're not to exalt ourselves. He is the one who does that. And then again in James 4, 7 to 10, we can see how we are to humble ourselves. First, we submit, therefore, to God. When you talk about submission, you're talking about putting yourself under the authority of the person you're submitting to. So in order to be humble, we put ourselves under God's authority. Then we resist the devil so that he'll flee from us. We draw near to God and he will draw near to us. That's an action verb. That's a present tense, continuous ongoing that you and I are to draw near to God. Then it says that we are to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. We're to be miserable and mourn and weep. And that's not talking about life. That's talking about sin, being miserable and mourning over sin. Let our laughter be turned into mourning and our joy to gloom over the sins that we see. So when we see our Supreme Court or our legislative branches making decisions that are contrary to the word of God, we shouldn't be rejoicing. We should be mourning over the things that they're doing that go against God. And then he finishes up by saying, we are to humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord so that he may exalt us. That humbling seems to be a really important precondition. When you think about it, how can God listen to us if we come in with our pride? And how can we listen to him in our pride? So we have to humble ourselves first. Absolutely right. When we think of humility, that goes against our grain because we're told that we need to be self-made people and we need to stand up for our rights. But when it comes to our relationship with God, it's not about us. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If we're going to be humble, it's nothing about me. It's 100% about God. That is the very first thing we need to do, because if we don't recognize God for who he is, and we don't submit to his authority, we can't continue on. We can't eventually repent. We certainly can't pray because it becomes all about us. We need to focus ourselves completely on God. Remember, pride is the opposite of humility. Pride has I in the center of it, whereas humility has God in the middle. And it would seem like our desire to pray, 
our desire to hear from God would come out of humility. So the next step is that we do actually pray. We have that communication with God. We recognize through our humility that our plans are not about us. It's all about God and what he wants and what honors him, what gives him glory. We tend to just jump right into prayer and have that be all about me. Father, give me, give me, give me. Do this. Bless this. Take care of that. Heal me. It's all about me. But that's not what true prayer is about. True prayer comes from an act of submission, of humility to God, recognizing that he is on the throne, that he is in authority. So then we can pray. If we go back to Second Chronicles seven fourteen, if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Prayer and seek my face are very similar. I think they are. So we're going to bring them together. Prayer is a total form of worship. If we think in the New Testament from Philippians 4, 6, a very familiar passage that says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Well, when it uses those two words, prayer and supplication, prayer is a very general term of worship. It's praising God, recognizing who he is, adoring him, honoring him. It's all about God in our worship. And then we offer our supplications, which are our requests. But think about it. If we start with supplications, it's all about me. But if we start with prayer, worship, it becomes all about God. And I love that verse because it starts out with that be anxious for nothing. And I think there's so much anxiety right now in our country, just the divisions, the disagreements, the things that people see coming upon our country. It's pretty anxiety provoking. It's something that God really wants us to take our concerns to him. So anytime you feel that, just take those concerns to him. It's an opportunity to prompt prayer. And so we can take concerns over politics, personal issues, turn all of it over to him. As we think of someone who was a prayer, I think of Nehemiah. In looking at the first chapter in the book of Nehemiah, when he found out that the walls of Jerusalem were broken down, he himself was humbled. He was broken at what he had heard. And it says in verse 4, it says, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And how did he pray? The very next verse says, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. And then it goes on to show how he was just worshiping God, seeking God's direction before he ever asked for anything. As a matter of fact, he says later, remember thy word, O Lord. And then he confessed his sins. And it wasn't until he was completely finished honoring God that he then asked God for what he wanted, which was uh, make thy servant successful today and grant me compassion before the king, he's saying in effect, so that I can go and help rebuild the wall. Do you see, if you read Nehemiah 1, that he first worshiped God to seek God's direction before he then knew it in order to ask God for his protection and guidance. So we're to come into his presence with praise and with thanksgiving and then give him our time. Maybe we're so busy worrying or we're so busy with our lives, we're just too busy to pray. It reminds me of a saying that I saw on a plaque and it says, a day hemmed with prayer is less likely to unravel. So if you can start your day out, you can end your day and everywhere in between when you're in that attitude of prayer, 
you're going to spend that time in his presence and there's peace in his presence. And you mentioned Thanksgiving because we see that in Philippians 4, 6. Thanksgiving is trusting God for the answers to these prayers. We are thanking God for everything he chooses to do, recognizing that he has the best in mind. It may not seem best to us, but it's best for him, it's best for his purpose and his glory when we have sought him and do things his way. So Thanksgiving is very important in the prayer process because it becomes not about me, but about God, what honors him. If we pray on our own, we're going to pray for things that we want. But when we pray in worship, then ask for God's direction, and we do it all with thanksgiving, we are willing to accept in a godly way, for God's glory, anything that happens. That's tough, but that's what God wants us to do, because we're trusting him with everything. And if we think back over the things that we have to be grateful for, it builds that beautiful relationship with him, that relationship of appreciation and gratitude for his character, for who he is. And it just builds and builds so that you're in a relationship with him that you don't want to be without it. You want to have him with you all the time. Perhaps that's why Jesus said in Matthew 7, 7, ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and the door will be opened to you. That's prayer. Ask, seek, knock. All in the present tense, which means we are to continuously be doing that. So how do we do it? How do we pray? Well, we can pray by talking to God or thinking, doing it in our conscious or subconscious without verbalizing anything. We can pray through singing or recitation of something like the Our Father. Got to be careful with that, though, because I've seen lots of people, and I've been guilty too, where I can say a prayer rotely but not even be thinking about what I'm saying. So I have to be careful with that. We can pray by writing a prayer out or perhaps reading a prayer that somebody else has written. I like personally just to talk to God. Like I talk to you, our listeners, like I talk to Jackie, like I talk to other people, because that's what prayer is. It's simply a conversation with God. I can't tell you the number of people that have said, oh, Debbie, I love the way you pray. You need to pray. And I said, no, 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 you need to pray. Let's give you the opportunity. And they just converse with God. And it's so beautiful. I love to hear other people pray because whether it's a simple prayer or an elegant one, it's from their hearts. And that's the most important thing. It makes me think of the song, the hymn, the old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus where he walks with you, he talks with you, all of those hymns, those wonderful lyrics that have to do with walking with him throughout your normal day. Well, that brings up another thing. What posture are we supposed to have when we pray? Do we have to be down on our face or do we have to be kneeling? And the answer is no. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. That means when you're standing, when you're walking, when you're sitting, when you're lying down in every position. Now, I want to get back to Nehemiah, because if you recall when I was reading about Nehemiah, and he was in a position where he was humbled before God and he prayed, did you notice that he also mentioned fasting? He fasted and prayed. Now, not everywhere is fasting mentioned with prayer in the Bible. It oftentimes is, and it's oftentimes assumed, because both of them are an act of humility. So we want to continue now in this act of praying and seeking God's face with the idea of fasting. Fasting with prayer has to do with a sense of need and dependence. It's kind of like a helplessness in the face of anticipating a calamity. 
for example, years ago when I had cancer, I was so broken. Prayer wasn't enough. Fasting was part of that prayer so I could give up things of the world in order to put God first and seek him. Whenever I felt a need, a heartfelt need to really understand God, I have fasted. You know, there are times when we really do feel like we need to be on our knees when we pray or we need to lay our faces down on the floor when we pray. There are times that we really do feel like we need to fast and pray. And when you add that fasting, Scripture does talk about there are times when there are things that are so hard that really fasting needs to be added to the prayer. And it's something I think as Americans maybe we aren't that familiar with, but maybe in times like this where we're so worried about our country and families and and what's going to happen This may be one of those times. If we spent more time in fasting and praying and less time in complaining Mm -hmm. uh, or even discussing, God would honor that a lot more. He wants us to fast. Biblical fasting is something that's good, it's profitable, it's beneficial for our souls as well as for God because it's an act of humility. Again, it takes our eyes off the things of the world and it focuses us on God. So instead of looking at filling the needs that I have with food, it fills the needs that we have spiritually. It lets God be our food. To fast simply means to cover the mouth. It's abstaining really from food biblically, but it could be from anything. Temporarily, we do this in order to focus on God. It's a remembrance that God is God, and he rules over our affairs, not me. There's a couple of things I want to mention about fasting, and that is that fasting changes us, not God. God never changes, but it changes our hearts. It brings us closer to him. It brings us to repentance. Because as we're dealing without something, we're more likely to see what our sins are and do without them and confess them. It causes us to turn to God in a time of need. You just look at Esther. My goodness, she called for everybody to fast and pray so that she could go in before the king. Because if they hadn't done that and she had gone before the king, she could have been killed. Fasting protects a nation. Second Chronicles 20 verse 3, Jehoshaphat turned the nation to God through fasting and prayer in order that God would relent from a calamity on the nation of Israel. Fasting takes our eyes off the things of this world so that we can more successfully turn our attention to God. We've talked about that with Nehemiah. Fasting helps us gain a new perspective and a renewed reliance on God. When when I can't have food, I have to rely on God for my sustenance. And by the way, we want you to know that you have to be very careful when you fast because of your health. Some of you may have diabetes or may have an illness that requires food. So you have to pick and choose the kinds of things that you fast on. For example, you want to set a certain time as to when you fast. Are you going to fast for, oh, 10 days like Daniel did with vegetables and water? Or are you going to do an Esther fast for three days with no food to drink? Maybe you'll do a David fast, which was no food for seven days. Doesn't mention anything about drink. I tell you, if you do a Jesus fast, be careful because that's 40 days without food or drink. I don't think any of us can do that without dying. So you probably don't want to do that. In Judges chapter 20, verse 26, it talks about fasting till evening. Maybe you want to fast from candy or lunch or a whole day or three days, but make sure you take care of your health when you're doing it and make sure it's God ordained. Because one thing we know about fasting is 
It's not meant to manipulate God. It's meant to humble ourselves before God. Debbie, you shared a lot of things about what fasting is and what it does, but what are the misconceptions about fasting? Well, I've already mentioned that fasting isn't manipulation of God. Fasting isn't something we do so that we can change God's mind. One time I fasted because I wanted God to heal my mother. So every Monday I fasted and wanted God to do that. Well, he didn't, and she died. Things didn't go the way I wanted to, and I got mad at God because I did what I was supposed to do, and he didn't do what he was supposed to do. Well, the fact is, as I look back, I was just manipulating God. Figured if I pulled out my lucky rabbit's foot of fasting, that God would do what I wanted. And that's not what it is. Fasting is also not diet. The reality is, once we stop fasting, we will gain the weight back just by our regular eating. Fasting is spiritual. It's not physical. Certainly, you can diet by not eating, but don't call it fasting. It's also not intended to punish the flesh. There are people who will fast as a way of trying to gain God's favor. Well, again, that's manipulation. It's not to punish our flesh by taking something away to be more spiritual. It's designed to draw us in humility to God. By the way, the Bible doesn't command us to fast. It's not required, but we see it throughout the Bible as an act of humility. If I really want to be humble before God, if I really want to seek him, if I have a difficult situation, or if we're in a situation like we are in our world today, that's when we need to fast because only God can change our hearts and only God can change our situations. And he can do that all as we get rid of ourselves and fast. And then we have to realize that fasting is not a way to appear more spiritual than others. As a matter of fact, I encourage people never to tell others that you're fasting. And that's what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 16 to 18. And that is that when we fast, we're not to do it to be seen by men. We're to do it instead so that our Father who seeks in secret will hear us and he will reward us. Prayer and fasting should not be a burden or duty. In other words, we have some religions that require fasting during certain periods of time. Well, that's a religious decision, and I understand the mentality of that, which is to encourage people to learn to fast. But if we're doing it out of duty, because our religion said so, instead of out of humility towards God, then we're negating it. We aren't to do it just out of duty or responsibility. For example, in Zechariah 7, 5, the wrong reasons for fasting were laid out here when it says, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, these 70 years, was it actually for me that you fasted? What God is saying is, did you do it for me or did you do it for yourself or for your religion or for whatever reason? So we have to remember, it's not a duty. We fast because we want to draw closer to God. We want to see his will, seek his will, and give up things of the world that we're dependent on so we can be dependent on God. And I just want to close with one story here about a king and a country who fasted. Nehemiah in 2 Kings chapter 19 was up against insurmountable odds from his enemy. And it tells us in verse 15 that he prayed. He humbled himself, recognizing God as sovereign. He and the people that he called to humble themselves and pray and fast, 
it says they went to God with the problem after they had done that. And they made request of God about the enemy. When they did all of these things with an attitude of humility, God not only answered their prayers, but in 2 Kings 19, it says the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 Assyrians. God killed the enemy because that nation and their leaders fasted and prayed. God is waiting in heaven to hear his people humble themselves, pray, and seek his face. Will you do that today? Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.